0: Before we get to the podcast this week, support for the Rigsby Report is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the -the below-the-waist grooming champion of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. That rhymes, DMac. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawn Mower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer just for you 20% off and free worldwide shipping. All you have to do is punch in the code DOD at manscaped.com. And guys, trust me on this. I'm a very transparent person. You know this. I speak the truth from the heart here, boys. Y- you got to trim right? You, you got to trim up. You can't be a woolly mammoth, for God's sake. Your lady does not want that. You don't want that. Get Manscaped. It's important. Punch in DOD at manscaped.com for 20% off. New sponsor of the Rigsby Report. I'm excited. The official groomer sponsor of the Rigsby Report. Manscaped. All right, let's go. And most importantly, welcome to dirtondirt.com. <laughs> This is the Rigsby Report for the week of August 10th, when we are recording this, 2021. And on the heels of my childhood hero, John Gill, on the last podcast, I now go to a guy that, to me, Steve Francis is just the consummate big race guy. When I was a kid, yes, obviously, Bloomquist and Moyer were the biggest names in the sport, but when I went to a race, particularly as an Illinois kid, that Francis was going to be at, it just had... This extra meaning to it to me. He was a guy that traveled all over the U.S. to these races. He did stars. He did have a Tampa. He did UDTRA. He did the World of Outlaws. He did Lucas. He did all of these things that just seemed so cool to me. He, he was a series guy. Always was on a tour. And there was some magic to him rolling in in that red 15, mainly. That was his car with those groups. And he just had such a unique perspective and has such a unique perspective on all things that are dirt late model racing. I mean, think about it. He's a Hall of Fame driver. He is part of the original Dirty Dozen, so he knows the politics of the sport at the level most don't. And now he is the tech director for the Lucas Oil Late Model Dirt Series. He really is a guy that's kind of done everything. And I have a quote that I use that Derek makes fun of me for all the time, but I mean it when I say it. If I want to know what's going on in dirt late model racing, I call Steve Francis. And yes, Steve will be, you know, we're all biased by our personal opinions, and Steve has some of that too. And I go to other sources, but Francis has always been such a go-to for me about the, you know, hey, help me understand this. I'm I'm very excited about this interview, and I and I hope you like it because Steve is always so transparent, and I think that shines through here. Uh, and I think you're just going to see the best of Steve Francis over the course of the next hour. A few things first. I'm going to talk about the Prairie Dirt Classic, and I know there are many of you who are going to listen to this and say, "Rigsby, please, please spare us this. We know that it's home for you. We know you're involved in Fairbury. You talk about falls and PDC all the time." So please, we we do not need to hear you talk about it anymore. So if you're one of those people that feels that way, just tune out for about the next two minutes. Go ahead and hit mute and come back in about two minutes. While I was at the PDC this year on Saturday evening, I had a gentleman uh, in the vending area who was from Georgia, Stop me, who had never been to Fairbury before. I I didn't ask him his age, but I guess a little younger than my dad, early 60s or so. And this guy... Literally had a tear in his eye. I'm not joking about this. And he said to me, Michael, what you have here at Fairbury is special. Don't ever take it for granted. So why do I bring this up? I bring this up because after the PDC, which was an incredible weekend and the biggest and best one yet at Fairbury in the history of the racetrack, really, I saw some pushback against the positivity of falls. People are getting fatigued by all the positiveness of what Fairbury brings but to that older man's point who stopped me, let's please not take the good stuff for granted. I have a friend who says, man, you know what? Fairbury's overrated. And of course, I'm going to push back against that because it's home. But mainly I'm pushing back because we have a tendency in this sport to tear down the good. We find that which is good and we gnaw away at it until it's gone. And Fairberry is one of those things we can't tear down. As J.C. Norgard said in his written piece afterward, Fairbury is pure. And quite frankly, I am tired of apologizing for being from there and always having to say, yeah, I know I'm from there, but man, it really is amazing. It's amazing whether I'm from there or I'm from another planet. The line I always say about Fairbury is this, hey, man, what's your favorite era in short track racing, I'll ask people. Most of them will say, eh, mid to late 90s, man, it was the best. I tell those people, Fairbury is that all the time. It's always the mid to late 90s there. That era of good and happiness, pre-social media, not everybody complaining, all of that. That That is false. Kids with lemonade stands in the neighborhoods, no neighbors complaining about noise, incredible side-by-side racing, and people who aren't thinking about climbing the corporate ladder, but are only thinking about making sure dirt track fans have the best dirt track experience of their lives. That's what Fairbury is. That's what Fairbury is. So my rant on that is over. But I really did want people, as I've seen some who've kind of pushed back against the positivity, I really wanted to respond to that. Yes, it's mine, and yes, I'll defend it. But damn it, some things need to be defended in a pure place that we should not take for granted like Fairbury is one of those places. And I can make an argument that these three weeks in a row in our sport all embody that. Fairbury, Cedar Lake, and Florence are all late model to the bone tracks and places that create a very special and nostalgic feeling when you roll through the gates of Falls, CLS, and Josh King's Florence Speedway. I-, I didn't want to slight Cedar Lake and Florence because they got some of those elements that Fairbury does as well, which are worth noting. Those people in Wisconsin go nuts for the USA Nationals, and it's no secret, I've said it many times, Florence and what the King family have, it's the geographic epicenter of dirt late model racing. So I, I just I wanted to mention all of that. Hey, also, quick note, no stick signals allowed anymore in World of Outlaws events, it looks like. I wish every series would adopt it and would make the racing better immediately. That is the quickest of quick notes. I'm all for it. Get rid of signal sticks. We all look ridiculous. Get rid of them. The racing will be better. Wanted to mention that also. All right, here we go. Steve Francis. It could be a tire cheating scandal. It could be a scheduling question. It could be me not understanding body rules. It could be a historical question. It could cover a wide variety of topics, but if there is something in dirt late model racing that confuses me or that I do not totally understand, I have a very short Rolodex of people that I know will likely have the answer to that question and that I call. And I'm pretty sure my guest today, and I am not bullshitting when I say this, might actually be number 1 in that Rolodex. From Ashland, Kentucky, joining me on the Integra Shocks and Springs hotline, one of the most dirt late model dudes of all time, Steve Francis. Uh, Steve, first and foremost, and I want an honest answer here, please. Have I ever annoyed you with one of those questions that I just alluded to? Are you ever just like, Rigsby, please call somebody else. I don't need you bothering me. <laughs> Have I got to that level yet, or are we still okay?
1: We're still good. You know, I I, I hear from you when you need to know something. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, and it you know, I, that, that make, sort of sounds like you hear from me when I need something, but mainly I don't want to sound like an idiot, so that's why I'm calling you. So I hope you can appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, you know one thing I
1: understand it. I'm just giving you a hard time
0: I know one thing you and i have have not talked about a lot, and I want to start with this question. It's kind of a two parter Do you miss driving a dirt late model at all, and secondly, do you think you'll ever drive a dirt late model again? Answer that for me if you
1: could. I miss the sitting in the seat part and steering the race car um but as far as racing competitively i'm I'm over all that um I had a great career. When I was in my 30s, I said, 45, you'll never see me at a racetrack again. You know, I'll I'll walk (laughs) away from it because I don't want to race too long. Well, I raced till I was 50, so I actually raced longer than I really had ever intended to. Would I race in the United States competitive again? No. Would I jump in somebody's car at a practice or a test session or something like that to make my five or six laps and say, okay, I can still do that or, you know, Boy, they've changed a lot, or you know, something like that, as far as the feel. Yeah, I would do that. Um, If I ever did race again, any kind of competitiveness, it would be I would just do it in Australia, where I can have fun, where it doesn't interfere with my job over here. I don't feel like it's right at all for me to do the job that I do with Lucas and then compete against them guys because it's not a Lucas race. So no, I would never race in the United States again. What
0: did you have a final straw, Steve, where you kind of said, you know what? I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Was there an aha moment or did it just happen?
1: Um, really not an aha moment. Um, I just really didn't know what my exit plan was. Yeah. (laughs) And, And when I got out of the car at Charlotte, I, Amanda knew I was about done, you know, my, my oldest daughter knew I was about done um, probably a, a very three or four people. And I got out and I just said, you know, that's, I, I don't have to do it anymore. I, I've had a really, really great career. The sport's been good to me. Um, I'll figure out what I'm going to do from here. And then, you know, the Lucas old job happened on Sunday and that was Saturday night. started happening <laughs> on Sunday. You know, the Rick at Rick gave me a call. So You know, I guess the good Lord upstairs had a plan for me, and you know, he he let me stay in the race car long enough until I he made an exit plan for me.
0: If I had told you when you were twenty, you know, hey, twenty year old Steve Francis, I go back in time, and here's this time traveler, and he says, one day you're going to be the tech director for the biggest dirt late model series in the country. Uh, Do you think you'd believe me, or what would you have said? What would twenty year old Steve Francis have said to (laughs) to the time traveler?
1: you got to remember when I was 20, we were just getting out of the wedge car. Right, right. That was a whole different, uh, you know, at that point when I was racing, you know, you're talking 32, three years ago, there probably wasn't a tech guy at the racetrack at that time. So that wasn't even a job that would have been there. If you would have said, do you think you'll ever be involved in the sanctioning end of it, in the promoting end of it, in something like that, I would have probably said, yeah, there's a shot of that happening.
0: Yeah. But to be in this tech position – um w- was that something that even interested you? Cause we're gonna talk about your brother Chris later, so I don't want to talk too much about that now. Was that something that even really interested you, Steve? Like w- when you were driving, were you like, Man, I you know, if, if I kinda had a say in this, we'd do XYZ, does that something that ever even interested you?
1: Um I think every racer in the pit area has said, Well, I don't know why we don't just Well, I've learned since I took this job that there's twelve reasons on the back side of that that you better think <laughs> the next twelve steps out before you make that decision too right. fast. Right. Um, so, uh, in that aspect, yeah. I mean, I've done the you know the Shane Clanton. Why don't you just do this? Or you know, <laughs> the list goes on. You know, Shane Clanton, Mark Richards, Tyler, Herb, Tim McCree, uh, Jonathan Davenport, Brandon. Sh- Every one of us has said that. Well, why don't you just? Well, you better think that out about twelve steps because the first step's the easy one. The next ten are the hard
0: ones. Right. Yeah. So, as the tech director now, I want an honest answer here, bare bones. Give me, you know, give me your all with this answer. What is the biggest thing we need to fix from a tech director perspective in this industry right now, or we're screwed? What's the biggest thing you think you'd fix if you could wave a magic wand?
1: Wow, that's a that's you could answer that in our sport is still a great sport, but it has so many little issues. That'd be like asking a politician how to fix the USA right now. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's uh, probably first and foremost is something with the tires. You know, you can say engines, okay, how are we going to fix engines short of going, you know, super late model engines, Now, crates, you know, they have their own little niche in the world, but how do we fix super late models? Because the cost is the motor. Um, That's what everybody's going to say, but, Okay, give me some solution. Somebody, give me some solution to fix that. Yeah, you know, there 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 isn't one that works. No way, no shape, no form. Oh, claim motor. Well, you can't claim an open. You don't know how many laps that guy's motor on. You don't know if it's been hot. You know, at the top level is what I'm saying. Um, so that doesn't work. So ones that can be fixed, number one one is probably the tire situation. Um, Meaning universal, you know, universal, right to get soft, uni- medium hard right rear. Yeah, and that be no. I'm not talking about the lack of, just the soft medium hard right rear. Three options for the right rear across the country. Fix that first. That's that's number one. So,
0: are you saying though? I want to be clear on this. You're saying a guy in South Carolina is it the same literal question, like tire for the same guy in South Carolina in Wisconsin, or it's it's something different? You're saying just you're saying soft, middle, Ford hard, not-
1: soft, soft. soft Medium hard. Okay. Well, the guy in South Carolina, he might be hard tire. The guy in Illinois, he might be soft tire. Um, there might be Florence, Kentucky, might be soft with a hard option for the right rear. But it's just three options. Sprint cars do it across the country, nationwide. And I think they—I don't even know if they have soft, medium, and hard, or just soft and hard. I don't even know their—they're exact. I think it's only two in the sprint car world. If they can do it across the country, why can we not do it? With three across the country, yeah,
0: and so you're not necessarily. I mean, that makes you're not necessarily saying everybody's twenty, thirty, forty. You're saying it's just a soft, middle, hard, whatever that variation is, is what you're saying.
1: What? Yeah, it might be okay. The twenty is a soft. The thirteen fifty is a medium, and the forty or the white dot sixteen hundred is a hard. Yeah. But same construction, same groove pattern, same everything. Soft, medium, hard. I don't know the exact numbers. You know, that's gets above my pay grade. But why can we not? Why can we not get that done across the board? I mean, and that includes, that would have to be Lucasole MLRA, CompCams, um, ULMS, World of Outlaws, uh, UMP. That would have to be across the board situation. I just, and this fixes another problem because now you take one guy that, you know, it takes an hour approximately to do a right rear tire right now. So now, you know, say four weekends, so now you've cut that guy, you know, you've cut your workload down just a little bit more for everybody too. Yeah.
0: Hasn't this been a problem forever, Steve? Like I feel like we've been talking about this. How long has the quote unquote tire situation because we've tried a million things, right? No groove, no sipe, and this and that and blah blah blah. How long has this been a problem? It feels like
1: forever. It has been a problem forever. We did no groove, no stop at I eighty.
0: Yeah.
1: Um had guys that ran the same tires a couple of knots. Wow. Um so there is some, now that was a WRS 55 which is a little bit more of a grooved up tire. We had some blistering on the edges of it. So maybe if we would have, uh, you know, if it had another ring around each of the outer edges, maybe that fixes that problem. But if you say, okay, you can groove the outer edge. Well, one guy's going to want to ring it. One guy's going to groove it across. So it's easier just to say no, no groove, no sob, Yeah. you know, and and go from there. Because anytime you open any kind of a gray area up, it becomes a problem again. That back to that very first question of think three. You better think five steps out or ten steps out when you say one thing.
0: Okay, so this is exclusive. Let's pretend it's exclusively your call. Lay, explain it to me. Just lay it out. Say, all right, Steve. Uh, Steve Francis joining us today. Uh, we have a new national dirt late model tire rule. Uh, what exactly? Explain it, Steve. Explain lay lay it out for the people listening. What it is?
1: It's soft, medium, hard, right rear. We're just going to start with a right rear tire. Yeah. Because, you know, we all know there's people in different areas of the country, you know, where there's still open competition tires, stuff like that. So there is some problems, but it's soft, medium, hard, right rear, no groove, no sop, no needling, no steel gold disc plates that cut the lines in the tire, none of that. You take all that out of the equation. You basically buy the tire, you take a 36-grid grinder, grind it, you know, clean the tits off of it, fold it on your race car, and you're done.
0: Yeah, and not only would that solve money, you think, but time, and just in general, make make the whole thing better.
1: Well, you know, we all know there's a lot of guys out there got tire deals and things yeah. like that. Okay, so you lose a little bit of your tire deal, but at the same time, instead of so the tire bin, I think tires retail right now one seventy five ish, one seventy eight ish. This tire, this tire is, uh, I would say one sixty, 160, one sixty five max retail price tire. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, everybody's going to pay that price for that tire, for that right rear tire. Now, but, I was a guy that raced on my career and earned my tire deal and felt like, you know, when people started this, that, you know, they were taking something that I earned away. But our world has changed a little yeah. bit. The tire deals aren't what they were years ago. It's a different situation now.
0: You know, we all know that, that racing we hear racing's too expensive. You talked about the motors. We're kind of addressing the tires now. Is it almost one of those things that can't be put back in the bottle? Is the genie of the expense of super late-model racing so much that just forget it. Like Rather than trying to figure out a way to make a $48,000 motor, $42,000, which really at the end of the year, I don't know, it's $6,000. If, if you're hanging on that six grand, you probably shouldn't be racing anyway. Is that genie so far out of the bottle that, that there's really – you can trim around the edges of cost, but, Steve, you can't make this thing cheap, right? It can't be done, I don't think.
1: No, you're not going to – I mean, you know, you're not going to take it and make it okay. It costs a half a million to run a Lucas Oil team all year. Just, I'm just throwing a number out there. Well, you're not going to all of a sudden make this thing be two fifty. Right, right. It's just, it's not an option. That's that's not going to happen anymore. Um, You know, but at the same time, we're talking about six hundred thousand dollar trucks and trailers now in our sport that you know, ten years ago were two fifty, two forty. Yeah. Um. You know, you just, you're just you not going to back that up. I mean, a lot of people say, well, we missed the boat by not, not you know, doing away with the wide bore engine when it came. Well, yeah, that's it. But now we instead of spending, you know, maybe you're five grand cheaper on a brand new motor, four yeah. grand cheaper on a brand new motor. I don't know, you know, the exact difference of the two, but it's not daylight and dark. The plus side of these engines is, you know, we used to run these motors 800 to 1,000 laps and it was rebuilt. Rebuild, rebuild 8,500 to 10 grand. And we're talking, you know, 10 years ago. Now the rebuild is 12, 14 grand, but the motors are running 14 to 1500 laps now. Yeah. So dollar per lap has increased a little bit, but not at the rate that some of the other things have increased.
0: You know, it's funny because I was on Derek's podcast with him and Tyler Herb yesterday. And I was like, we got to figure out a way to make this cheaper. And as I started to work kind of on your podcast, I'm like... Yeah, we're screwed. We can't, <laughs> we can't do it. So, uh, if if you're listening to both podcasts, I know I'm kind of saying both things. Uh, one other thing, Steve, on the tech stuff, and I have so much to get to you with about your career. What is the most shocking thing? That you've seen as tech director, I'm not asking you for a name. You want to give it to me? That'd be great. But is there anything you've come across where you're like, "Whoa, shit! I ain't seen that before." What is that thing? Do you have one?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I've seen I've seen some guys with some uh, some four link designs, some four link rods that have, are really, really some trick stuff. That you know, the way they place the spring around the bird cage in the four link rod and stuff like that. But it ain't going to pass. So don't buy. You know usually you'll see that stuff test, you know, like practice night. At, usually you see it right off the bat at Speed Weeks. It's something they've thought about all winter. Sure. It's like, well, you don't want to really waste your practice night because that ain't going to pass.
0: So do you think they know – I mean, do you ever have anybody that's going through the tech line and it's like, man, oh, Francis doesn't catch this. I mean, you're going to catch it, right? I mean, are they sweating when they're standing there? Are they trying to explain it to you? What What is that like?
1: The tech line is basically – what the tech line does is per- – protects me so you can change your stuff like you can come through this tech line and pass pass tech line and go back to the truck and work on your car and change it we all know that's capable you know you can do that sure but if i catch it when it comes back through then it's on you it's not yeah. on me because yeah. your car wasn't that way when it comes through so if you got to go to the tail or you don't get a qualifier or something like that because you changed it it's on you so the tech line protects me is what it does
0: I always talk to a lot of people about the person I'm interviewing and that was no different here. And I was, I was trying to think of the right way to say, you know, when I was talking to your friend, I talked to Tim Logan, I talked to Mark Richards, I talked to Rick Eckert about you for this interview and I was trying to think of the right way to say Steve Francis was a guy that was really cool for somebody like me in Illinois to see. Of course we had Billy and Scott, but I couldn't really think of the right way to say that. Right? Like I always loved getting to see Steve Francis and I was like, I don't know how to say that. Right. Right. And Mark Richards said it perfectly to me. He said just last week about you, he said, Francis was always a part of where the best racing was. And I thought that nailed it, right? He said, no matter the series, the event, whether it was West Plains or Hagerstown or Cedar Lake or East Bay or Stars or Have Tampa or the Outlaws or Lucas, you were where the best racing was. That's really true, isn't it? Maybe even more than Billy and Scott. Steve, you were always there. I mean, I, I don't know. That's not even a question. I'm just sort of throwing that out there to you because I think he nailed it, didn't he, when he said it that way?
1: Yeah, and I am. Part of that is just uh, he is right about that. I was lucky enough to, timing of my age when I was at the, my very best in the sport, I was able to go through every bit of that and see every bit of that. And really, it was really fortunate that the the Charlie Schwartz's and the Jeff Purvis's and even Scott at the beginning, you know, yeah. and back out up to Freddie Smith and Mike Duvall and Buck Simmons and Larry Moore. And, you know, those guys paved the way for us. Then we paved the way for kind of this, this next generation, but I'm not exactly sure this next generation understands how good they really truly have it. Um, what do you mean you by know, that? I, I really, I, Just look at what a guy can win racing now. Yeah, that's true. And then, you know, we built what we figured out back in the day, and this all starts all the way back, go all the way back to NDRA. Smalley figured out that if he put the best guys together, the promoter had to pay and guarantee and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, then, you know, Rick Eckert, Dale McDowell, myself, Jimmy Mars, um, you know, that, that list goes on and on of those that group of guys. and Skip, our, you know, even Freddie at that point of it, we knew that, you know, if you ran have a Tampa back in the day, that your money was going to be there. You were going to get the best purse, so on and so forth. Some of the younger generation now, I don't think, really understands what the sanctioning bodies do for them. That if you took, let's just say, World of Outlaws, Lucas Oil are gone. That's you know what those are the two Yeah, of course top yep. traveling nationwide series that pay the best. Part. Yep. Yep. Well now you're not running for ten, twelve, fifteen thousand to win, two thousand for tenth every night. You're running for still probably ten thousand to win, thousand maybe for tenth probably not probably a thousand for fifth. You're paying a bigger entry fee. You're paying every time you go out, you're paying for your four wheeler, you're paying for this, you're paying for that. And they don't realize maybe how much value the series really has because they grew up where the series were already there. When they started racing, the series were already there, but well, that's just the way it was. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted the best race cars, you sanctioned with one of those groups. Well, you know, they, they didn't realize that when they go off and run these, you know, one-off events and things like this, how it actually affects the, the sanctioning bodies in the series and, and all of that anymore.
0: Of all this, I'm glad you brought up the series. I want to go through these one by one, um, but we don't have, to, I don't want you to spend too much time on each one, but of all the series you've run, what is the best part of each one of them? So let's go through, uh, let's start with, and you, you help me here. Keep me honest. I guess stars, right? Stars was the first series. So let's go through them one by one and tell me, you know, the best thing about stars was the best thing about having Tampa was let's start with, I think stars was your first one. What was the best thing about stars?
1: The best thing about Stars was it was regional and it was a really, really great stepping stone to stay four hours from my house.
0: Yeah. Uh, have a Tampa next? And I
1: had great friends. We were a great group of guys that did that together. You know, Donnie me, Chubb, Chubb, Balzano, yeah. Tim Hit, um, Donnie. We traveled together. We ran ground together.
0: What about, it was Have a Tampa next?
1: Uh, have a Tampa was next. Best thing. And that was like my first... Real, real national get out and go, you know, go. And what it really taught me even more of the, again, back to how important the series is and how, how to points race. That really taught me more about how to points race that have a Tampa thing. Cause you know, I was, we went up a level. Yeah.
0: Was um I guess how do you want to look at the next series you ran? Is it technically UDTRA Extreme or do we move on to the Outlaws or what do you you tell me what's next?
1: <laughs> I think that was kind of a UDTRA one year thing, yeah. and that was also at the same time I went through everything with my brother and yeah. all the stuff there. So, um, really that one is as much about friendship. Um, yeah. Rick Eckert and I traveled that whole year together. Um, shoot, I think his daughter Courtney called. My my brother, uncle Chris. She I mean, did, that's yeah. how tight our group was at that time. And you know, we would leave and stay gone three, four, or five weeks at a time. But you might see our trucks at Kings Island three times in that, <laughs> or at Cedar Point. Um, that was just that was really a fun time up until right there at the end of the year.
0: Uh, Chris, uh, we'll, actually, we're going to talk about Chris more. Um, I guess World of Outlaws next, right? Part of the original Dirty Dozen. Don't answer the Dirty Dozen question yet, because I'm going to get to that. Best thing about the Outlaws <laughs> circa 2004 was what?
1: 2004 was, you know, the the first time I had a race team after my brother passed. Uh, we won the very first World of Outlaws show of that era at, at Volusia. Yeah with a brand-new team and everything, um, and that was a group of really, really tight-knitted guys that were what outlaws meant, what Ted Johnson meant outlaws was back in the day. That yeah. was, you know, we traveled together, and our job was to come in and whip everybody at every race <laughs> If you weren't one of us, we expected, we, we wanted to whip you. You know, whether it was um, Bart Hartman won or I won or Scott won. Yeah.
0: And that was, I still say, the greatest collection of talent ever, right? That original Dirty Dozen to me, and I know you're a little biased with Lucas now, but I still think that original Dirty Dozen is the best set of drivers ever assembled, yes or no?
1: In that time frame, way far in ahead. How does this group now compare to that group then? I don't know how you can even compare the two. It's a a complete different era. But that was the first time that you ever put a group that deep together. I agree. I mean that was twelve guys that could win anywhere, yeah. anytime, yeah. any point.
0: All right. Finally, uh, Lucas Oil. Best thing you switch over to Lucas Oil, best thing about Lucas Oil.
1: Organization. The the whole group, Rick runs a a really, really well organized group and professionalism. Um, that was the biggest thing that I noticed when I went there is like Bigger picture, bigger picture, bigger picture, bigger picture. Yeah. Um, You know, we all thought of the next level. Well, they had a plan to get to the next level. Sure.
0: I didn't design it this way, but one of the recurring themes that so many of my Rigsby Report podcasts have come back to, from the Doug Bland interview to the Bart Hartman interview to the Mark Richards interview, is that original Dirty Dozen and that pivotal year of 2004 and the tire situation with Goodyear and all that. What do you if I just said Steve what do you remember most about that what would your answer be
1: <laughs> I again we're going back to a problem that I just I'm going to contradict myself here <laughs> but you know I'm going to be honest about it the original thing was we had all worked so long so hard to get those tire deals and to, you know to have that tire you know that tire knowledge and that tire deal and it felt like they were jerking the rug out from under you When they come in there with Goodyear, Um, you know, the extreme deal and the Goodyear deal. So it was about that was as big as anything else is, you know, Doug Bland had a lot of really, really well thought out ideas. Had he not maybe tried to, I don't know if cram them down your throat was the right idea, because some of what he had in mind was is definitely right. In hindsight. And,
0: and being applied today, I might add. I didn't agree with everything d- d- yeah, Doug did. You're, you're right. right. Being right. applied today. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. But he, maybe his execution, had he done his execution a little different, he might be the biggest thing in the sport right now. I don't I don't know that to be sure, but he might be the biggest. You know, you can't go back and unspill spilt milk. but. He might have been the biggest thing in the sport had his execution been just a tiny bit different.
0: Perfect segue to my next question, Steve, which is: Should literally I have written down in my notes? Should that have worked? Should we be looking at the continuation of the Dirty Dozen, or you know, that whole like? Should should not the Dirty Dozen? Should what Doug Bland have done worked? And actually, with that, let me two-part that: Should the Dirty Dozen have worked? Should one of those things have worked? Because, in essence, neither one of them really did, right? World Racing Group kind of had to come in and clean up everything that happened there. Doug Bland's deal kind of had to go away. Should one of those things have worked?
1: Again, execution. Yeah, they both should have worked. Yeah. They both should have worked. And, again, a little of that Dirty Dozen thing is when you can see it kind of splinter a little bit, you kind of see what happens with it. Yeah. And this goes back into exactly what I'm talking about. Some of the younger guys haven't ever seen that yet. Isn't so it, when you see it kind of splinter off a little bit, and now everybody's trying to pick off a you know one or two guys for a series. You know, uh, there's probably more series in dirt late model racing than there's ever 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 been or ever thought there would be yeah. this year.
0: Uh, isn't it? You know, when you think back, the last thing I'll say on this on that Doug Bland whole situation. The thing I love about it, Steve. Is how like cloak and dagger the stories are about it. We met in a hotel basement. He had to drive to <laughs> to Pittsburgh's airport and meet me on the freight side, or not Isn't it, isn't it funny when you think back? And I'm sure only half those stories are true, but it's a pretty funny thing, isn't it? About that whole year oh four oh five there. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, well, and you got to remember we were banking our livelihood on that, and everything that we would built had built and done, you know. If one of us felled one way or the other, and, and Doug did the same thing with, you know, with what he did, um, you know, you don't want to get blackballed in one of them situations, you know, where you can't for some reason come and race if you're into the end that goes bad. Yeah. So, you know, until you had your ducks in a row, you didn't really want everything out there.
0: I don't wanna I don't want too much color on every stop along the way, but from the time you started in Dirt Late Model Racing to the time you finished, I want you to take me through every ride you had, whether it's cell phoned or not. Can you go ride by ride for me? And you know, you know, again, we don't need tons on every one, but I think it'll help people go, Oh yeah, oh I forgot about that. So take me through it, Steve, from the very beginning all the way to the very end, all your rides in chronological
1: order. <laughs> well, I hope I don't leave somebody out get somebody, because <laughs> I did a lot of, you know, uh, I did some one-off things, two-race things, three-race things. We don't have to count those necessarily, those. But, but, you know, yeah, just get, but go th- ahead. those were really fun. Yeah. Um, you know, we started with my parents, me, my brother, my mom, my dad, started, you know, uh, Bubby James, Scott James' dad, drove for my dad for a couple of years. And then when they split, I was 15 years old, started racing uh dad put me in a late model some people say you know what are you doing putting a 15 year old kid in a late model well you know we were pretty successful and you know just kind of built it a little at a time a little at a time a little at a time we now we did start i had a a one-ton pickup truck with single axle had a toolbox in the back of it had a trailer i think it had maybe one tire rack on it and one car and one motor and i went racing um and me and my brother, you know, were able fortunate. We had a lot of success through the years. Um, first real ride I, I drove for Marion Martin. Um, a lot of people remember the old 44 MMs van yep. uh, car that uh, Pat Patrick drove some before me. Um, Tom Stinger I think was also a sponsor on that. Um, I drove for them and we had a lot of fun. I think we ran like third at the World 100 and. 1990 or something like that, 1989, 1990, somewhere in that area. We ran, like, third in the World 100, and it was like, wow, you know, uh, this is fun. We won a lot, a lot of races that year. Um, kind of went back to my own team then. Um, did it a long time. Uh, let's see, then the next one, real, the next real ride I had, uh, well, I drove for Mark Richards after my brother passed for a few years. Uh, yeah that was, a, you know, we had an excellent team, um, had Chad Haney and Joe Paxson and, you know, Mark and myself out on the road. Um,
0: the Mopar car, right. That was a was lot of fun one?
1: that, yeah, that yeah. was the Mopar cars yeah. and stuff. Uh, you know, that was right after my brother passed yeah. and, you know, Mark and those guys were stepped up and kind of, you know, when that first happened, I wasn't really even a hundred percent sure what I wanted to do. Sure. And those guys stepped up and, you know, I'd already been in Mark's cars for six or seven years. He's, uh, he's kind of like my older brother, we don't always agree. Sometimes we <laughs> argue, but at the end of the day, we both know we have the other one's best interest in mind. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, there was times I would call me and Mark and talk, uh, we might talk two hours and never talk about a race car. Yeah. Um, you know, that, it's that kind of relationship that I, that I still have with Mark. Um, you know those guys were great. We had a lot of fun. They gave us everything we needed. We we had some successful years. We didn't win as much as we wanted. Um, probably crashed Mark's car as hard as I ever crashed anything at Pittsburgh. <laughs> uh, Pittsburgh or one year. Uh, every time I see a picture of that one, I, I, that reminds me how bad that one hurt. You'll uh, see. Then I, in '07, Tim Logan and Tim and Lee Lee Logan was my crew chief. Tim's son. Tim and Lee got together and we kind of ran Tim's car, some of my car, some and we're kind of teamed up there. Um, had a lot of success that year, won the world outlaws championship. That's right. They won the pit crew. Tim and Lee won the pit crew challenge. You know, that was, uh, that was kind of like second family kind of, um, you know, Tim lived three miles from me. So, you know, we hung out a lot. He was, you know, at the shop all the time. Um, just a whole lot of fun there we had. Um, I skipped Larry morning. I completely forgot who I was. Yeah. Larry <laughs> out of there, The Morgan yeah. disposal car. And Larry was like, listen, he said, I don't want to run a full time schedule. He was very him and Ronnie Stuckey were very, you know, this is what we want to do and we want you to drive for us. And Larry, Larry paid me very, very well, and his family was good to him. You know, I went to Arizona and I would go to Arizona with Larry in the winter. I you know, I passed up a couple of really, really great Chili Bowl rides to go to Arizona and, and run Larry's car at what has become, you know, the wild shootout now Yeah. back in the day at Casa Grande. And Larry never skimped on anything that he ever gave our race team. Um, and it was whatever you want, you tell me. I just expect it to be taken care of, and I expect you to run good with it. You know, don't, don't give me an excuse you didn't have it because here it is. You want it, here it is, but be successful with it when you get it. And, uh, shoot, I think we won, there was one week in there. We won like $65,000 in one week. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And um,
1: you know, we won like, we won like Fargo and second at Cedar Lake and one Lebanon, Missouri and Memphis. And like we, in a five or six, seven day period, we won six or seven races there 10 days or something. Um, so that was, you know, Larry was, Larry was great. Um, you know, great to have around, um, still talk to him occasionally at the racetrack and stuff like that when we get a chance. Um, Let's see. Then I would then, like I say, we had the Logan year, uh, drove for Dell Butler, uh, Dell and Robbie Allen. And that first year we actually, and this, you know, we were on American racers and we actually won that area auto racing news. um, Deal that they have up there, that driver of the year thing competing against Brad Hearn and all that Northeast guys but we didn't run in the Northeast that much and we ran the complete (laughs) world outlaw schedule, but still won that thing. Yeah. Um, all those guys, which was really something, you know, I think we won both races at Hagerstown, both races at Winchester, both races at Bedford, Lucas and the Woo race. Won them both.
0: That's that was enough. Uh, That's all you needed to win up in the Northeast apparently, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, we, well, shoot, we won, I don't know how many races we even won that year. Um, but that was a great year. What year would that uh, have been? What year talk. was,
0: what was the Beitler year, Steve?
1: That was oh eight oh nine. Okay. Okay. That was eight and nine. Um, I, to this day, I still, when I go to Florida, Dell has a place not too far from East Bay. And after we get done with speed weeks, I usually go over and try to spend three or four or five days with Dell at his place down in Florida. And, um, we randomly talk, we might go a month and not talk. And we might talk three times in one month. Yeah. Um, still talk to him a lot um you know then then I actually went back run my own stuff a couple of years then I drove for Barry Wright for a year and that might be the single most fun year I ever had was just you know it was me and Barry and, and Lance and you know we just uh, we did what we wanted um there was no pressure in that that might be the single most fun for just a one-year thing that was the most fun I probably ever had racing Interesting. Now, that being said, we also won the topless that year. We won um, Knoxville that year. Yeah. Uh, probably what you tell me is the most famous interview you ever done it with was the me, press, Warrior and Burkhoffer.
0: That press conference is still literally ranks number one. I actually have a question about that press conference later in this interview. So, uh, okay. Yes.
1: Um, you know, that was just a – that Knoxville weekend still ranks as probably one of the best weekends I ever had in my whole career. Because, you know, we went third, second, first. People that know me know I'm not very, not a, not an arrogant person. I won't say, well, I'm going to win this or this or that. But I told Barry, uh, almost to the lap of what lap I would take the lead and how far back we would fall before we got back up through the field. <laughs> and that's just how good that car was and how confident I was in that race car. Yeah. Um,
0: why'd you only do that ride for a year? What happened there? I mean, if it was that fun, well, we went
1: to Boyer, me and Barry went to together. That's right. And, and, and Clint was, (laughs) you know, people can say, Clint is the guy that you see on TV. Um, he is as much fun to be around as anybody I was ever around. Um, I really can't say anything bad about anybody I ever drove for or anything like that. I never really had any, you know, bad deals or anything like that, that wound up that way. Uh, you know, it just Clint's situation, you know, from the NASCAR world is a little. I was always a hands on guy. Even when Barry had my cars there, I was there yeah. hands on. Where that, you know, Clint was like, man, I want you relaxed. I want you to go play golf. I want you to show up at the racetrack, be fresh, you know, be. And that was a little change for me. Um, not that I'm complaining about it because it probably extended my career that extra two or three years sure. of just having that little bit of time to do that. Um, you know, and, and it, also, probably made me understand life a little better, because all I'd ever done from the time I was 15 years old is race. I hadn't done anything else. So to go four wheeler riding and to you know have time to play you know golf three days a week or something like that was like that was a that was a change in my lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, not having a race car in my shop to be working on all the time and stuff. So you know. Uh, Had some great crew chiefs, you know, there had Tommy Greco, had uh, uh, Anthony Burroughs, you know, had some really, really good crew chiefs there. You know, plus you had Barry overseeing the teams and stuff. So it was just it was just a lot of fun down there. You know, you go down there with Clint, you never knew what you were going to get into. You know, you might be. uh, you might be going hunting, you might be going fishing, you might be going to the, farm. you know, you just didn't know. It was always entertaining.
0: What was after Boyer then? Cause now we're kind of getting up into that, like later, you know, 13, 14, 15 towards the end of the career. So what were the last few rides there?
1: Uh, well, then I drove when well, I did the Boyer deal, then I drove for, when I left Boyer, I went back to Tim Logan, me and Tim raced a year together. And that's when I got hit at Granite city with yep. the, the piece of, of lead uh, that really in hindsight, you should have stopped right there. Yeah, that should have just been the career ender. Um, you know, I slept, sleep, slept, sitting upright in a chair for five weeks after that. Wow, it broke my eye socket, my cheekbone, my nose, um, broke all the cartilage loose in my ears. Um, really, should have been the cruise. Um, but you know, you know, a dumb old racer. I didn't know how to do anything <laughs> else. So, we finished the year out with Tim, and we decided I had some sponsorship and stuff. So I decided I would do one more year on my own, yeah. and I did one more year with the Capital Car, and you know, then just kind of uh, I got out of the car at Charlotte and said I don't I don't need to do it anymore. And really, probably Manda was the only one that truly knew that I was going to do that. Yeah. Um, but I got out of the car and just said I don't you know I don't have anything to prove. I'm not going to race way longer than I need to, and and lose everything that I made from the sport. I still want to be involved in a sport. I don't know what that's going to look like. And if, it, if I'm not, then I'll, you know, I'll go into car. I always liked old, you know, street rides and stuff like that. I'll go into messing with something like that. Yeah, so Thank that was, you. That was my two exit plans.
0: Those were, that is an awesome retrospective down your career. And I, I think people forget how, you know, storied your car owners and yourself and your career has been. So thank you for that. How, you know, you hit on a few things there. How different is racing a dirt late model right now than it was, say, let's just use 1995. Uh, what are the biggest differences? And I'll take anything, by the way. On the track, off the track, any of it. How different of a world is racing a late model full-time now versus racing a late model in 1995?
1: Way, way, way more work now than it was. Then, really? As far as, because, yes. Because then, you legitimately had, if you were a top-end team, you had two cars and three motors. And that was all you really had. Yeah. Um, you know, we were just getting into the big toter homes. The big toter homes, nobody realizes how much work they truly are. Oh yeah, maintenance and all that stuff. I mean, it's like having another house. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to clean and, and another house that you park at a dirt track every week. <laughs> uh, you know. Good point. I didn't think it, of it like that. <laughs> it, it's a solid two days of cleanup on one of those things.
0: Well and you know that now you know inside outside laundry you, you not only do you, you, know, you still are cleaning sport. them up, yeah.
1: So um that's where I say the more work. Um you know the cars are way more well kept. They're way more technical, so you have to be perfect on everything. The competition level, you know, in nineteen ninety five how many guys could win the world one hundred twenty five of Ooh, the two hundred there?
0: I don't even know that twenty five. You, Donnie, Scott, Billy, maybe twelve guys in nineteen ninety five. Maybe Eckert. You know, um, but I don't, you get two hundred twenty cards. That's there. right. But right. Now you got yeah,
1: eighty or ninety there,
0: and thirty could win it. But right.
1: Forty five of them can probably win the race. Right. Right. All right. everything lines up perfect. Stars line up perfect. Forty five can probably win the race.
0: That's interesting. Um, it's a good perspective. I've never really thought about. What about off the track, Steve? How different is it now than it was in
1: '95? As when you're saying off the track, are you talking about like in the pit area? Yeah, or are in the like, pits
0: or up and down the road or relationships or any of that stuff that's not inv- the Not the racing
1: aspect. I don't. Of it? I don't see the groups that we had back in the day. Like I can, I can give you a, the perfect example. I got to this is me and Eckert were. Or- we were racing at Joplin, Missouri, I think. First time I ever met Doug Bland, as a matter of fact. And we drive, we leave Joplin, and World Outlaws are racing like Topeka, Kansas, when they've done the race on the drag strip. Yeah, oh, yeah, I remember that. So Eckhart says, let's go. So we just drive on over there. And we get out, and, you know, we're parked in our trucks, and we're hanging out, and we're like, like kind of watching the sprint car guys. And like those guys don't didn't like each other at the time. Yeah. You know, you didn't see Steve Kinzer hanging out with Sammy Swindell. Yeah. I guess that's my that's my perfect scenario. It's like me and Eckert went to a race. Well, now you don't see our guys necessarily all hanging out like that, like they used to. You see small pockets of it, but not the big group like you used to see. You know, you used to go to Florence, Kentucky, and uh, every racer would be you might be divided into three groups in the whole pit area.
0: Steve, I have, like, my. it's funny, I wasn't even on the road with you guys, and my memories when I talk about dirt late model racing are like, oh, man, when I was a kid, Eckert and McDowell and Francis, they were up and down. There's, like, something so romantic about it, right? It was so much, like, cooler in 1999 than it is now in a way, and I don't know why that is, so... Um, I don't know. It just... well,
1: I think a little bit of it has become money. You know, we all looked out for each other. You know, if you couldn't win, you wanted your buddy to win, right? And you felt like your buddy, you would trust. You know, your buddy, whether it be, you know, our group was, you know, a lot of times it was me. Like in the early days, it was me, Tim, Hit, Balzano. Then it went to like me and Eckert and uh, Dale McDowell. Then it went to you know you Clint Smith and and. Uh, Shane Clanton and me and Eckert and Tim McCready. Yeah. You know, so we always, and if we could, we always would help each other. We, there was never a secret on any of our cars amongst each other in any of those groups. And if you question it, you just went over and got his notebook out or look at it yourself. This day and time is nowhere near like that. It's every man for himself now.
0: Steve, just by happenstance, and this is literal happenstance, we are recording this interview almost 20 years to the day um, that your brother Chris, by all accounts, one of the most beloved human beings in Dirt Late Model history, uh, insanely talented crew chief, almost 20 years ago to the day that he passed away. It was August 20th, 2001, and he died at the age of 32. Do you think, Steve, you've ever really recovered from that moment in your life?
1: I don't think anybody could ever, anybody's ever lost something like that um, could ever say that that you recover, you figure out how to go on, but there's still days that, you know, you, you wonder what would have been, what, you know, how much different would your life have been, you know, we were successful at that point racing, but you wonder how much different would your whole life have been, you know, would him and I, you know, be, you know, Jeff Gordon and Chad canals, you know, or, yeah. or Jimmy Johnson and Chad canals, I'm sorry. Um, you know, where would we have been? Where would we have landed? You know, that thought definitely crosses my mind a lot. Um, you know, how much different would, would my life be? You know, would I have driven for some of the great people I have? Or would him and I be building, you know, would him and I be you know, own Rocket Chassis and Mark be retired now. You wonder all those yeah. things in your mind, you know, what would have been different? Um, said, recover, no. Um, learn how to go on, yes.
0: You know, talking to Mark and talking to Rick, there's not a single person that said, hey, uh, he was not he, – he literally at the time was one of the two or three best crew chiefs in the entire world. Um, brag on him for a minute, Steve. Chris, Chris was really freaking good, wasn't he? Wasn't he?
1: He was so far ahead in, like, he never had any kind of training as far as, like, sheet metal work and anything. But if you go back and look at pictures of my cars from, say, 98, 97, 99, just look at the bodywork on my race cars compared oh, yeah. to most of the rest of the field and the way that the, way that the cars look and everything. He was more of the, um, you know, when he passed, really the shock dinos and everything were just really starting to become real, real popular. And he was so far ahead on that stuff that, like, I took care of the engines and, and like, the setup on the car. But, like, he took care of the technical end, like the, the you know, like, shock dynos and um, body work, sheet metal work. Anything to do with anything like that was kind of his main forte. And we just knew how to work around each other that, you know, we never even – it was never a thought, you know. Um, the weird thing about going back to that that twenty year, well twenty twenty some years ago now, um, was that, you know, not only did I lose my brother, but I lost my brother, my best friend. We played golf together. We did everything together. We were together, you know. I don't know how many hours you're in a week, but probably except for sleeping and dinner with our families or something, you know, his wife, my wife, whatever. Yeah. We were pretty much together the rest of the time. So, you know, that was like a triple shot there.
0: What do you think he would make of modern dirt late model racing? Like, obviously, if you had Chris back for one more day, it would be all the love and affection and the brotherly stuff. But, of course, you guys are racers. You talk racing. What do you think he'd make of modern dirt late model racing if he was was here today to see it?
1: He would be trying to figure out the next – I would compare him – to probably Kevin yeah. Rumley without the engineering degree, the more of the hands-on figured-out yourself yeah. without the degree guy, that's where I would put him. He would be thinking, well, why aren't they doing this? Or why aren't they doing that? Or why did they do that? Yeah. You know, why has that become the most popular way to do it when you could do it this way? Yeah.
0: It's hard to believe it's been 20 years, isn't it? I mean, it's it's almost impossible to believe.
1: Yeah, it is. It really is. Yeah, it really is. And, and, you know, you go back and you start thinking about all the things that have changed in your life yeah. through that and how much different it would be if he were here. Sure.
0: You know, one interesting thing to me about you, Steve, and I, I Charlie Schwartz and Rodney Combs kind of get the credit for opening that Australian pipeline and late model racing, but I know you were kind of right there with them and not far behind them, and you made some hay there, too. I, I'd hear whispers of guys making you know, you know, I heard a guy made twenty grand. A guy made th- not you know more than I heard you know, a guy made a hundred grand in Australia selling cars, racing over there. Show up fees. I heard a guy sold his helmet for three grand in Australia because it was so hard for them to get stuff back in the day. How big of a boon was Australia in its heyday? I know it's not like that anymore because everything's so much more accessible for Australians in America. But financially, how big of a deal was Australia there for a while?
1: It's still that big a deal to this day. Now you're not going to sell a helmet for three grand or you know something like that, but I probably load and sell, send three to six containers, full forty foot containers a year to Australia. Wow. Okay. Okay. Um, So, matter of fact, this year I've already sent two and there's two more coming. So that'd be one, two. I'm just trying to add up in my head. One, two, three, four. That's at least four or five complete cars, two or three motors, and probably 10 or 11 525 crate motors. Uh, It's probably six or 700 sheets of aluminum. Wow. Probably 10 or 12 sets of headers, 40 or 50 red eaters, uh, four or five pallets from Performance Bodies, uh, you know. So you're doing well. You're still doing well is what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't you know, this is some of my very, very best friends are in Australia. Yeah. Some of my closest friends are in Australia and it's kinda of weird they're East Coast and West Coast. Didn't Char um,
0: didn't Charlie and Rodney literally I mean I, I, you don't have to tell me, but I heard stories of them they can make a hundred grand in their Australian trips alone. Is that true, you think?
1: Uh not that much, but you gotta remember you're talking about you know, when they first started going you're talking about mid eighties. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um so it was, you know, it was a different time again, but like, you know, Charlie's the one that got me going to Australia, Australia. Um, you know, Charlie Swartz was a big part of my career through a lot of the, you know, early years taught. He's probably one of the few people that taught me a lot about the sport Yeah. and, you know, how to work on the cars and you'd always look at Charlie's stuff and it was always the neatest, cleanest looking race cars. Um, And, you know, Charlie taught me a lot of that, a lot of those things about the cars. He, you know, took me to the races. I mean, C.J. Rayburn, you know, I was probably as fortunate as in my time frame. I was at the top with Rayburn, the top with, you know, when Rayburn was at his very, probably the very top, I was with Rayburn, with Swartz, with Mark Richards, all when they were kind of at the top, kind of like the same thing with the series. I was very fortunate to be around those guys, Uh, you know, the house car ride, so to speak. Sure. Um you know, I was around those rides a lot and you know, they just taught you so much faster about how it's gotta be this way, it's gotta be the best way, it's gotta be, you know, a hundred percent it can't be half assed anywhere.
0: You are nicknamed the Kentucky Colonel because you were literally made an honorary colonel by the governor of Kentucky or the state of Kentucky. First of all, I think I have that description, right? And I also want to hear about the ceremony. I w- did they use like a yeah. sword on you, Steve, like they when they knight people in England? <laughs> or uh, Give me a little more background on the colonel aspect and what it the actually, ceremony was
1: like. It actually went down at Gaffney, South Carolina at the uh, New Gray 100 of all places. That's the best. So take, how did <laughs> it Richard happen? Okay. Richard Cunningham, um, a lot of people not remember him from yeah. being around like the old Kentucky Racing News and some of that stuff uh writer about, you know, a lot about the sport and stuff like that, been involved in it. Richard is the one that got the governor to do that. And I can remember they had Terry English was there, and there was somebody else there from Kentucky. And I've got the picture someplace I would have to go find it of, of you know, when Richard brings it out and gives it to me. And I had no clue any of this was coming. Yeah.
0: I, I don't know, so, I just uh, love, did they, there was, did, like, did you get a certificate from, like, the governor? Yeah, or? there's, a, yeah, there's <laughs> okay. John,
1: uh, at the time, the governor was John Law Brown. Uh, yeah, I have a certificate hanging on the wall. I have a wall going downstairs in my basement that has a lot of plaques and trophies and, you know, uh, not trophies, really, just plaques and pictures. And, you know, you remember those, those big wooden things they had, like, when I won the World 100 and stuff oh, like yeah. that on them that go down those steps into my basement. And uh, I have that, and I think I have four trophies in my house
0: other than that oh, man. i i would i wish there was video of it you know like I, I envisioned you at the governor's mansion in kentucky steve with a sword on either side of you and you're kneeling <laughs> and they put like a crown on you i'm a little disappointed it was at the blue gray but it's also perfect in a way so um uh, last couple of things yeah. before we wrap up and i get to my true or false questions you referenced it and i love that you did arguably my favorite interview or set of interviews I've ever been a part of was in Knoxville in 2012 when you won the Knoxville Nationals. It's you and Moyer and it's Burkoffer. In Knoxville, you forget if people don't know, I didn't interview guys one-on-one at the time. They brought all three of the top three into the press conference together. And unlike the Sprint Car Nationals press conference where there's a million people in there, it's usually just me and Todd Turner in this press conference asking the Knoxville people questions. And you and Moyer and Berkhoffer turned in go back and listen to it 2012 recap knoxville national saturday collectively the knowledge and insight you give about dirt late model racing that night is still the best thing i think i've ever been a part of uh on the heels of that you called knoxville that night the biggest win of your career uh sparked a little controversy with the folks at eldora because you had previously won the world 100 do you still stand by that Knoxville's the biggest win of your career or is it the 99 world
1: 100 Knoxville is the biggest weekend of my career okay because because of what we touched on you know the the third, the second, the first, yeah. that confident in the car, feeling like if, if nothing broke, there's nobody here going to beat this race car yeah. this weekend World one hundred is still the world one hundred you know it, it's if you if I didn't have that trophy, I don't know that I would feel like my career was where it is.
0: Sure.
1: Um, or, you know, wh- where some people think I got to in my career, whatever, however you want to word that. Yeah. Um, but I have that trophy. And having that Knoxville weekend play out the way it did meant as much to me as that. When in the World 100 was done with my brother. Yeah. When in Knoxville was done with that Barry Wright team that we just, we had fun every weekend. Yeah. Um, two completely separate scenarios. But when we won that World One Hundred was like, man, we you know we had won now you gotta remember this is nineteen ninety nine in a dirt late model and oh. my brother and I with a small team had just won right at a half million dollars in nineteen ninety nine yeah. and was leading the dream and didn't win it. Yeah. Or you know, that would have been a that would have been right at a six hundred thousand dollar year in nineteen
0: ninety nine. Yeah, that six hundred and ninety nine is a little different than six hundred in, in two thousand
1: twenty one, right? So <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, that would be that'd be what a eight, nine hundred million dollar year?
0: That that Brandon Shepard kind yeah. of year with less expense, right? With less expense. So even better, yeah. right? So well, yeah.
1: Motors back then were, you know, eighteen, nineteen grand. Yes, exactly. Uh, a car was ten grand, you know, you had thirty thousand and everything. Now it's a hundred and fifteen or twenty thousand in a
0: Rick Schwally yeah Rick Schwally, you know caught some heat uh, so the, I, I'll I'll going back to that Knoxville best weekend world 100 biggest win is that fair way to sum that up that's fair. Okay. That's fair. Roger Slack will sleep happy tonight, knowing that you answered that. That'll make him feel good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he will tell me after a while. <laughs> yes. Um Rick Schwally, you know, was on my podcast last month and he said, you know, I, I don't know that he caught some heat, but there's certainly some reaction to it that hey, there should only be one national tour, not two. What do you what would you, what did you make of that? I know, again, you're a little biased working for Lucas, but what'd you make of what Rick said as a guy that's also a racer?
1: Well, I I did listen to it. Um actually listening to it going down the road talking to rick on and off on the on the cb as we're going down the road um and what i thought of that is the way i took it is you know it's okay for there to be two but he wants to be number one <laughs> you know he wants to be the best he wants to be you know put your foot on everybody else's throat if you got the opportunity yeah um you know he wants to be the best um i do think there is room for two That's something Rick and I maybe disagree on a little bit. But I work for and still in some of his words, I work for this one. So this is the one I'm worried about making the best. That's right.
0: And I think that's a fair way to to look at it,
1: I think, right? Um, But I do not think there's enough room for everything that's going on this year post-COVID when everybody that was open made a fortune last year. And we've got races scheduled on top of races scheduled on top of races. And they're soon gonna start hurting each other. I listen We've already seen some of that. I,
0: I listen, I know that Rick made it clear he wasn't a fan of what we did with our ten race mini series and, and I get I think he has some fair criticisms. However I'm
1: not just I'm not even just talking about yours, I'm talking about in general. I agree. Uh, pick a weekend. Pick a week, you know, used to you had the big crown jewel events, there wasn't anybody scheduled on top well, that's, of that Well,
0: that was my point, Steve, well, is I'm not that big of a, a dickwad that I'm going <laughs> to schedule on top of.
1: Like, but, I, I respect right those now,
0: races, right? I mean...
1: I'm looking right now at the North one-headed. Being around as long as almost almost any, crown jewel event, 50000 to win, you know, a big deal. And I can count probably four races scheduled on top of it within five six hour radius yep yep that makes that's asinine that makes no sense to me i can't fathom that at all i agree and, and, and then i can't fathom some of the drivers that would say well get us more money get us more money but then joe kwasiski and steve and the uh, guys out there put up more money than anybody has put up you know go back to the old west plains thing 5300 to start he paid yeah get 44 race cars you got to explain this to me i cannot for the life of me, I cannot understand this.
0: The Kaziski thing pissed me off a little bit because you—if you're a professional race car driver—and I know Nebraska is not exactly Florence; it's not in the middle of the country. But if you're a professional race car driver, and this guy's not only going to pay you fifty-three hundred dollars to start the race, this guy's going to pay thirty grand on Thursday night, and you don't go, I—I I don't, I, Steve. I don't. I can't explain it. Right? I mean, at forty. Mid-40s on race cars on an event that should have had 80-plus, 70 at the least. Hey, hey. I don't I don't get it, Steve. Again, I, I, I don't know, get I, it.
1: I, I can't. I, I did not get that, and I don't understand. And obviously it proves that when racers sit there and yell, pay more, pay more, pay more, then they turn around and don't come. How can they expect you to pay more? And this all goes back into exactly what I was talking about, about some of the younger generation not not understanding exactly what they're doing when they drive off from that race and go someplace else and do something else. Now,
0: now I know that I know that's not exactly the time. I'm a little off tangent, but I could I love doing this with you. This is mrs. by the way, this is me and Francis at the pits. This is what you're witnessing right now is Francis and Rigsby in the pits. So Steve, imagine I told you, hey, uh, you and Chris Francis, it's 1994. There's a guy in Nebraska that's going to pay a half a million dollars in purse over the course of five days. Chris, you wouldn't even even had time to put your shirt on. Chris would have thrown you in the hauler and you would have driven. <laughs> you would have driven there. Immediately, Steve, right? I mean there would have been no debate. Without even thinking a, a second <laughs> chance,
1: not even giving it a second thought. Yes, as right. fast as we could get there.
0: Right. I, if I, I think I could have got you to go farther. It's in Denver, Colorado. Okay, we're going. I don't think it would have mattered. I think you would have yeah. gone, you know.
1: Yeah, for that money, we're going. It doesn't matter. That's what's going to make the sport bigger and better.
0: Okay, last couple things here before true or false. Uh, I want you to rank take your lu. you have to you have to take your Lucas hat off for a second for me here. You have to take it off. And We know you love Lucas and you're very respectful and all that, but take that hat off for a second. I want you to give me the top 10 dirt late model races in the country. I will give you my top five first, how I see the top five right now. You take your best stab at one through five or one through 10. I think the top five right now are the World and the Dream. I still think the Eldora Biggies hold. I think the Dirt Track is still three. I'm not, you know, Portsmouth hasn't been the raciest place in the history of the world lately, but it's still the dirt track. It pays $100,000 to win. Carl has an indomitable, you know, a never-ending place in the history of the sport. I got the dirt track three. I think the north-south is number four now. I think the north-south has been elevated to the fourth biggest race here comes my bias a little bit. I think the PDC with car count, fan count, everything, I pray dirt is now number five, but I think an argument can be made. PDC, Knoxville, and I eighty could all be number five, but I put PDC number five. What's your top five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, Steve?
1: I'm I, mean, I am different than you on this because I, I view it a little bit different. That's fair. It's gonna be hard for any it's gonna be hard for anybody to beat World One Hundred. Yep, agreed. Plain and simple. Yep. Hard to beat. I don't. I do not agree with the double, the doubles, and all that stuff. To me, that's that's taking something away from it. Won't happen forever, but, though.
0: Won't happen forever. Just this year, I th- I think. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think anyway.
1: I, I I think it hurt the 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 history. The, you know, some of that. And I'm, I'm a little bit of a realist. I'm not sure that the World 100 should go back to a Two You know, a, a, a traditional, more of the old traditional way, just because of what it is. It's the granddaddy, so it should be – it should stay tradition. Um, World 100 is still number one. I I won't disagree with you on that. Now, this is where the racer and Steve comes out. I rank them a little bit by purse on this, where we go this. Biggest Saturday night purses is where I kind of go to with this. Okay. Now, we're just talking Saturday night only. We're not talking all week. We're talking Saturday night only. Okay. So I've got to put – Legitimately I've got to put uh I put I eighty in second. Now I know it it had a huge crowd there. Huge crowd there. They only had 45, 40 whatever cars. So that hurts it a little bit. But I still put it there because they put the money out there. And I bet I've talked to twenty people that say, Man, I thought there was gonna be eighty cars there, or I would have came. Yeah. You know, I I think so much money scared a few people away. Okay. They're doing it again next year. So, we'll see where that lands. Okay. Number three, probably come back to the dream. Okay. Number four, I still put Knoxville number four without a question. Okay. I put the north-south number five. Okay. I put... Cedar Lake number six.
0: Interesting.
1: Because okay. it's been there for so long That's in the fair. tradition of it. That's fair. I still put probably the Show Me One Hundred number seven, because it's been there a long time. It's had the great purse. The purse is increasing again. You know, the you know, the the whole Lee Greenwood thing this year, the amount of cars, the people there, all that. I put Prairie Dirt Classic number eight, but but coming toward like this is its first year at fifty thousand. I agree. The fair fair criticism. I agree. If it's the sixth year, if if, if it goes to a two hundred thousand dollar purse, it jumps into the top five instantly.
0: You haven't mentioned the dirt track yet. Is that is that on by your just just that one slip your mind? That needs to go somewhere up there in that top it, five. The Dirt
1: track probably slipped my mind. I probably need to back the dirt track up before Cedar Lake. I, I, I just I, I would agree. You know, I back the dirt track up, so just back everything up.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Um, I don't know how I, you talked about the dirt track, and it just completely slipped my mind because I wanted to make sure I kind of mentioned, sure. you know, the difference in why you and I differ on the Prairie Dirt yep. Classic. And, and But I do understand what the Prairie Dirt Classic has that not, not a lot of dirt late-model events have is the whole town is behind the event. Yeah. The whole town, you know, is behind it. And that is what has the potential to make it sure. more special. Sure,
0: I agree. That's fair. That's fair. So you're 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. PDC goes to 9. Show me PDC. And then do you kind of have that topless, firecracker, that whole kind of group in that next last bunch there? I can
1: put probably, yeah. I can, and I'm going to put one in there that's going to surprise you. Okay. I'm, I'm going to put, like you say, the topless, the firecracker, and I'm going to still put the final night of East Bay there. Speed Week's final night of East Bay every year.
0: Okay. I think it needs to pay more to to be on a list like this. Otherwise, I think the World Finals goes on a list like this, and I don't think the World Finals is a crown jewel. It's a mega event, but not a crown jewel. But I will accept your – this is your list, so I'll accept it. Mm -hmm.
1: So, okay. And, again, I'm back to a little bit of a traditionalist on that final night of Speed Weeks because that thing has produced some stuff through the 40, 50, whatever years that they've been doing that at East Bay you know, okay. back into the early eighties. Okay. That's where I'm coming at with that one. Top is history of the sport.
0: Okay, so World, I80, Dream, Knoxville, North South, DTWC, Cedar Lake, Show Me, PDC, and then you've got that top list firecracker East Bay finale kind of in your group. Okay. Uh top five dirt late model drivers of all time. And you don't you don't have to like, you know, give me too much context on every one. But hey, Steve, gun to your head, the five best ever. Who is it?
1: Five best ever. Scott wins. Scott's first. Agreed. Billy's second.
0: Agreed. No doubt on the top two. This is where it gets interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is where this is where it gets really interesting. Barry Moore's third. Okay. I I think probably Buck Simmons is fourth. Okay. You know who my number
0: five is? I think Jimmy Owens is one of the five best ever.
1: I think, I think Jimmy and Jonathan Davenport and Brandon Shepard all three have the potential to knock somebody out of that top top. Okay, so the one, mine, mine is Jeff Purvis. Okay, Purvis.
0: And is anybody in the world going to argue with Scott Billy Moore, Buck, and Purvis? Nobody. I mean, nobody's going to argue with that, right? I mean, isn't it kind of crazy though that number one and number two? are so clear. And I think it's a clear number one and a clear number two. And that's you don't get a lot of sports like that, right? Like where basketball or football or whatever, this is pretty clear, one and two. I think we all agree, yeah. it's, it's Scott and Billy, right?
1: Yes, it's. I don't think anybody would argue that. I think had Jeff Purvis continued to dirt race and not yep. go onto the pavement... You would have a solid top three.
0: Bo Jackson, he's Bo Jackson, right? Bo would have been, you know. We just, we don't know. Yeah. We know he was one of the best, yeah. but we didn't get a finish. Uh, this is good stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, now that
1: next five is where it gets really. Oh,
0: really I, I didn't ask you for a top ten because I think, by the way, you might be in that top ten. I, I just, I, it gets murky six through ten,
1: <laughs> right? It very gets, quickly. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, you got Jack Boggs, you got Freddie Smith, you got Charlie Schwartz. You know. Yeah. Where do you, Donnie Moran? Donnie where Moran. Do yeah. You know how do you, Steve
0: Francis? I think Jimmy Owens in his current uh, state could be in there, right? He's won so many races. I mean, I think you know it's it's tough. Um, From the greatest ten late model drivers ever to Kyle Larson, I think he is the best pure talent behind the wheel of a race car I have ever seen. Am I right about that?
1: One hundred percent. The only two people that I know that that I ever seen race that can compare that I've seen race a bunch of different vehicles is Tony Stewart, Tony. AJ Foyt. Yep, I agree. Yep. Probably the top three most talented in any vehicle.
0: Without question. Uh, other, other than Larson right now, who are like the top two g- – you mentioned J.D. Who are the best two or three guys right now and what makes them good?
1: Are we talking this very? Second yeah, this or are we moment, right now. Last two-year frame time.
0: Uh, so yeah, yeah. I'll give you eighteen months, right? You know, I don't mean you know August tenth necessarily. Eighteen months. And why are 18 they eighteen months? Yeah, so all of twenty twenty and into twenty twenty one, right?
1: See, you can It's it's really hard for me to put Jimmy or JD. Jimmy had a great last year. Yeah. not as great this year. JD had a great. Last or this year, not as great as last year. Yeah. So Brandon Shepard probably is the top of that. Just you know, he stayed consistent. He won all of them races last year. He's leading the points over there at, at Woo this year. Not the year he had last year, but still a very solid year. Okay. So Brandon um, number two right over. I'm going to go with Tim McCready. Uh, you know, Consistency it's funny over the over the eighteen months.
0: Everybody says that. Everybody, you know, I asked Overton, who's the best driver in the country when he's at Fairbury. He goes, McCready, and McCready's not one to the level of JD Overton or Sheppey, but everyone says McCready. That's how respected he is.
1: <laughs> well, he's he's quietly quietly consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Very. You know, if you're going to go the last six months, it's it's Overton. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, Uh, we end every – this was all freaking fantastic. I could do two hours with you, Steve, so thank you. We end every true – or excuse me, we end every Rigsby Report with two or three true or false questions that are a little lighthearted, so here we go. True or false question number one, you work with your spouse, Amanda, who I love, by the way. She's fantastic. On the road, you work with her. Be careful here with this answer. True or false, (laughs) working with your spouse is easy. True or false?
1: It's easy for me and her. It's not a problem for us. It's very easy for us.
0: Okay. So, true. That's good. Great answer. This is, I don't know when your anniversary is, but this is a good buttering up for that. This is an excellent, excellent answer. <laughs> um, true or false? I like this one a lot. There are some stories out there that Steve Francis is notoriously frugal. He's always keeping an eye on the bottom dollar. So, be honest here true or false? Steve Francis is, in fact, maybe overly frugal. Is that true or
1: false? way more in my past than I am now. <laughs> now, I, I, this goes back, and I'm going to tie this into something else. Okay. This goes back to a lot of the car owners that I drove for. You stop and think, Larry Mooring, Bill Butler, um, Mark Richards even, very, very smart financial men, all self-made men. Yep. And those guys taught me a lot about how not to become a broke racer at the end of your career? Yeah,
0: okay. I like that. That's a good answer. Um, all right. So um, somewhere between true and false, maybe back in the day, but not as much anymore. Okay. So <laughs> that's that. Yeah.
1: One. Oh, I'm still. I'm. Not, so I'm going to sit here and tell you. I'm still. I'm. You know. I'm still tight. You know. I. I <laughs> want to go blow a hundred dollars here or there for no reason. You know. I might do that, but I'm not going to blow a thousand.
0: Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, final true or false question. You are a bit famous. For keeping your driver's suit on later than anyone else in the pits, which I always liked, by the way. And I have a theory on this. True or false? And I think this is, this is good if it's true. You kept your, your, your driver's suit on so people who wanted to come up and get autographs and stuff would know who you are. Because back in the day, there was no TV and stuff. So you kept it on so you could be recognizable. True or false?
1: <laughs> false. That was a, this was a. I did keep my driver's suit on. But there was a reason for that, and you got to remember we didn't always have these big, fancy makoda homes with sh- you know showers and everything sure. in them. My driver's suit was always dirty, it was always sweaty after the race. It was me and my brother a lot. We worked on the car after the race for a couple hours. We were notorious for being the last ones to load up, usually because yeah. we went ahead and worked at night every time. Well that was dirty clothes that already my suit was already dirty, so I'd use my suit to finish up working on the car uh-huh. instead of putting clothes on and getting clothes dirty too. Then I got two things dirty I got to wash.
0: This actually makes a shit ton of sense, Francis.
1: <laughs> actually <laughs> makes perfect sense. Now again, this was before suits were $3500 a piece, you know, sure, you don't sure. want to get nothing on
0: them. <laughs> oh, those were that so. was great on True False. You know, Steve, I want to wrap up with this. I have a saying that I use all the time and that phrase is late model to the bone. And it describes guys like me and you, born and raised around Dirt Late Model Racing. We didn't stumble into this. It has been a massive part of our lives since we were kids, uh, Late Model Racing, you and me. You, obviously, to a higher degree than me. And and one thing Mark Richards said about you, I wanted to leave you with this. He said, we need more Steves. No matter what you think about some of the decisions that Steve may may, may make now in his current job, Whatever you think about that, or whatever you have thought about Steve Francis, Mark said he does it for the good of late model racing, and we need more Steve Francis's. Those are pretty powerful words from a guy that knows a lot of things about dirt late model racing. What, what do you feel when you hear that?
1: Um, I can honestly say that I probably feel almost exactly the same way about Mark. Yeah, I, him and I do not agree all the time. <laughs> um, it's nice to be recognized for that and it's also nice that you know he understands that it's not always going to you know i think what he's trying to say is no matter what you're not always going to agree with him but he's trying to do what's best for the sport you know i i was very very fortunate throughout my race career business decisions everything else that the sport was great to me I'm doing this job because I love the sport. I'm not doing this job for the money. I'm not doing it for anything else except for the fact that I still love dirt late model racing, and I want to see it go on. I could probably make a lot more money doing other things than the job I'm doing, but I still love the sport is the only reason I'm doing the job I'm doing. And I like the people I work with. I really like the group of people, you know, Rick, Jeremy, Ashley, Heath, Amanda. I really like that group of people and what we're trying to, All of us have the same goal for the sport, and that's why I do this job.
0: Amanda, let the record show you were the fifth name that he mentioned there. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, you know how I feel about you, man. um, You've been an asset and an ally to me for a long time. Uh, And again, we don't always agree on everything, and that's okay. I think that's what makes our relationship healthy, too. You did an hour and a half with me. Mm. Thank you so much, buddy. I really appreciate it. Good luck at the North-South this weekend, okay? All right, thank you. If you buy a car, truck, or van, new or used from Bomb Chevy Buick in Clinton, Illinois, you get a free lifetime, that's forever, subscription to Dirt on Dirt and Flow Racing, literally until you're dead you get this subscription. Check out bombchevybuick.com today. That's B-A-U-M chevybuick.com. They are based just south of my house here in Clinton, Illinois, in central Illinois, and they also happen to be just awesome human beings. I love the folks at Bomb. You need a car or truck, new or used, buy it from Bomb, and you get that added benefit of a lifetime subscription to Flow and DoD. And quite honestly, that's pretty freaking cool. Steve Francis will forever go down as one of the most important people in the history of our sport. I really believe that from his career as a driver to everything else he's done since then to just his involvement from guts up of the sport. There are not a lot of Steve Francis's and as Mark Richards alluded to above, we're a lot better off if we have more Steve Francis's, but there aren't a lot of Steve Francis's. He's a bit of a unicorn in that way. uh, And I hope that shine through in the interview. Thanks Steve for joining us. And also for our next go round I'm kind of thinking Nick Hoffman. This guy who's accomplishing things in dirt-modified racing that have never been done before and now driving for Scott Blomquist for who knows how long. And I just, I got a lot to ask Nick. I think insight into his world would be fascinating, honestly. And we can talk about how much I love Mike Harrison too, which I know will make Nick happy. Rigsby Report will be back in a couple of weeks. We'll have two podcasts this month, and our World 100 coverage is just around the corner, Fifty the 50th World
1: 100 coming up.
0: Thanks, guys. We'll be back in a few weeks.